Hey folks, we wanted to let you know about a brand new book that we would suggest you check out. It's called Five Day Weekend. Today, you're gonna get to meet the co-authors, but this is a book that shows you how you establish a financial platform so that if you were working only two days a week, you could have the freedom, the financial freedom, to be able to choose how you wanted to invest the remaining five days every single week. You can go to fivedayweekend.com. That's with the number five, fivedayweekend.com. This is The One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. My name's Jeff Woods. I'm the vice president here at The One Thing Team. At any point in your career, have you ever wondered, where's this all going? I'm waking up every single day. I'm literally trading my life in this job. And am I even getting the good end of the deal? Do you believe that if you ever want to have extraordinary wealth that you might have to change your actions? You might have to change the way you think. The people you are going to meet today would suggest yes to you. Every month, as a part of our One Thing webinar series, we bring on a best-selling author and have a live conversation with them and with a live audience. You have the opportunity to join us, which you can learn more at theonething.com slash webinar to see who's coming up next month. This month, we featured Nick Halick and Garrett Gunderson. They are the authors of the brand new book, Five Day Weekend. And this is a book that has a particular spot in our heart because the publisher of Five Day Weekend is Ray Bard, who is the publisher of The One Thing. Ray picks one book a year to publish, just one in an industry where most publishers publish a lot of books every year, they throw it against the wall and see what sticks. Ray puts all his eggs in one basket. And when you look at all the business books that have ever been published, there's roughly 10 or so that have crested a million copies sold in their lifetime. Ray's published three of them, at least three or four. One of them being the one thing. And he now just published his one book this year is this book, The Five Day Weekend. Freedom to make your life and work rich with purpose. If you would like to see the video version of this, you can go to theonething.com slash webinar where you'll be able to see our faces. There's slides that show the models that we walk you through. And if you wanna keep on listening to this while you're at the car or in the gym, go ahead. And we hope you enjoy this episode with Nick Halick and Garrett Gunderson on how you can keep more of what you make, achieve financial freedom, and live a five-day weekend. Hey everyone, welcome to our monthly One Thing webinar series. This focus of this week is going to be keeping more of what you make without cutting back and achieving financial freedom. Every month we bring on best-selling authors, we expose them to you live and give you the opportunity at the end to do some Q&A with them. And uh, we're really excited about our authors today, Nick Halick and Garrett Gunderson. I was first introduced to the five-day weekend because our publisher of The One Thing, Ray Bard, is also the publisher of this book. Uh, Before we dive into the book, I wanted to give you an overview of how this relates to The One Thing. You know on page 114, we have what's called the seven circles, the seven most important areas of your life, your spirituality, your physical health, your personal life, your relationships, your job, your business, your finances. Today, we're going to talk about how you have an extraordinary financial life so that it can fund you doing everything you could possibly want. And quick clarification, you know, the five-day weekend is not necessarily just about working two days and then you know, watching Game of Thrones for five days. It's about establishing the financial structure. 
so that you can work two days and you can choose what you want to do with the remaining five days. And the gentlemen you're going to meet today actually live their life that way. And they have set their finances up there that way. And they're going to walk you through it step by step. And it doesn't come by doing everything. In fact, we know this is called the challenge of life. We can't possibly know it all because life's too complex. We can't have it all because life offers too much. And we can't do it all because your time is too limited. That means we have to make choices. Choices specifically for this training on how you invest your finances, what you do to generate more income, what you do to protect more of that income. It's about choice. It's about thinking big and going small and ultimately trusting the domino effect. I think a lot of people who have, out of curiosity, the people who are here live, how many of you are in living your one thing? Go put the number one in the questions box. If you are, then you know that it's not just about doing the right activities and all of a sudden success showing up. In fact, Gary Keller says, sometimes you're succeeding so slowly, it feels like you're failing. You're doing the right thing, just knocking that domino down day after day after day. And like you see on this curve, you don't see results right off the bat. But over time, when you are consistent doing the right activities, it leads to extraordinary growth in any area of your life. And that brings us to the purpose of today's conversation. How do you keep more of what you make without cutting back and achieving financial freedom? Now, I'm going to read. I've got a copy, my copy of the five-day weekend here. I'm going to give you a little bio on these two gentlemen. Nick Halick is an entrepreneur, adventurer, angel, angel investor, and speaker. Traveling to over 149 countries, he's dived to the wreck of the Titanic, climbed some of the world's highest peaks, recently visited North Korea. That must have been fun. And he's a certified Russian cosmonaut. Nick lives in Hollywood Hills and has residences on four continents. And then we have Garrett Gunderson, the man with the hair that you just cannot bear. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Killing Sacred Cows, Overcoming the Financial Myths That Are Destroying Your Prosperity. He's the founder of an Inc. 500 financial firm. He's a paid Forbes contributor and a frequent keynote speaker. And what I think is really cool is both of these guys actually live the book, which is awesome. So Nick and Garrett, welcome to the One Thing webinar series. Hey, thank you. What an awesome welcome, Mellon. And Garrett, your hair looks awesome. <laughs> Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. I feel good. I'm feeling really good so far. I like the compliments. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun. So, so Nick, um, the... At the heart of the one thing is in extraordinary results is the idea of goals. And I know that when you were just eight years old, you set 10 big, audacious goals. Talk to us a little bit about those. Yeah, well, definitely uh, big and bold. And um, unfortunately, that, uh, that, that young little kid that still resides in me was uh, resilient and incredibly stubborn. But um, uh, for the first 10 years of my life, I was medically confined to my bedroom, uh, chronic allergies, debilitating asthma. Uh, at age eight, with uh, nothing to lose, um, I pretty much drafted the screenplay of my life. And since age eight, I've been the actor, the producer, and the director of my screenplay. I write down crazy things like, you know, becoming a multimillionaire, running with the bulls, you know, going, becoming an astronaut, uh, living on a space station, just crazy things that, you know, that a young child, you know, with their imaginative mind can actually come up with. You know, I wanted to be a karate instructor. That didn't happen. Uh, why is it that so many of these things actually did come to fruition? I guess I'm just saying I'm, I'm, I'm a typical Torian, incredibly stubborn. And, and I know in life, you'll never get what you want. You'll never get what you deserve. You'll only get what you negotiate. And uh, for me, I just um, cut every sign of return. I've just been, uh, I just, it's just that perseverance. 
Um, mm. I've persevered. I mean, I, I had all those medical ailments. I had a lot of challenges in my life. So for me, it was always more like trying to prove everybody else wrong. Uh, when a doctor said that I couldn't live an ordinary life, well, I want to like defy them. I wanted to defy the the academic system. So for me, it was all about just um, proving the system and your authorities wrong, and that I can actually, you know, design or be or be the architect of my own life. That is. So where did this idea of the five day weekend come from? Well, by default, I mean I'm pretty much sort of stumbled upon it. Um, I didn't, I didn't realize, I didn't, I hadn't raised my level of awareness that I was living a five-day weekend lifestyle. But uh, for about you know 15 years, I was traveling around the world. Um, you know, I, I consider myself a cyber gypsy. Uh, you know, just this, um, this you know multi-millionaire vagabond. But um, I wasn't confined to any uh, cubicle or a workstation or a factory floor. I had entrepreneurial businesses. I had a lot of, um, uh, I had a, an extensive real estate portfolio. So I was able to um, dictate how I was, um, my, I guess, my, my entrepreneurial endeavors. I mean, I mean, you know, and, and I, I pretty much about, it was probably about 12 years ago. Here I am. I'm, I'm, I'm living on a Russian military base. Monday to Friday, a Russian military base with troops and tanks. And yet I'm in my dormitory on a Russian military base and I'm doing webinars, I'm doing conference calls on my, um, on my, on my laptop computer kind of thing. And I'm thinking, hold oh, if I could be on a military base here, conducting business and my entrepreneurial lifestyle, I mean, I could be anywhere in the world kind of thing. So the, the formula was, you know, was sort of um, created, um, you know, a few decades ago. And I started to live that life. And it sort of dawned on me that um, I guess I, I would be in the trenches probably about, you know, 80 or 90 days a year. And most of the time I was just, just, um, just you know, transient and just um, traveling around the world, I guess. Cool. Cool. And Garrett, What's your background? Talk a little bit about that outside of having the world's greatest hair ever. So I'm going to say two things about Nick and then give my background. First off, he created 10 visions more than 10 goals. And they were just crystal clear. You know, get to the moon, live on a space station, eat on the Titanic down in the ocean, you know, be in an active volcano, uh, be a rock star. This guy was a guitarist for a rock band, and that's how he started to earn his living and invested money rather than blowing it when everybody else was out partying. So he just had crystal clear things. But what I like about it is they were bold. So they would probably elicit fear in most of us if we wrote them down and excitement. And that combination seems to be the most workable thing. So they were crystal clear and there were they were things that were out of reach at the time that he wrote them down. So I think that's really important distinction. The, the second thing is it's really annoying when you first meet Nick and you see his lifestyle because it's like, this dude knows how to invest money, and he invested in becoming a better investor. Money's a lifestyle, and if we don't figure it out, I don't care what your gifts are, all that could be ruined because he's a professional guitarist. He taught guitar lessons. I think someone showed up at his door when he was 12 years old, and he was like, I'm a guitar teacher. And they're like, what? I I'm twice your age. How are you going to teach me? Then he just showed that he was pretty amazing. So I think that's really cool to illustrate that he created this from his own invention of his mind. But then what we brought is the systematic way for others to build the same thing. So my background is I came from a coal mining town. I mean, I'm a third, like my great grandfather left Italy in 1913 to provide a better life for his family and didn't see him for seven years. And then he had to be, ends up being a coal miner, buying a tiny house in East Carbon, Utah, and finally moving his family over and meeting his daughter for the first time when she just turned seven, then his son, 
and then, you know, basically my grandfather and then even my father were all coal miners. Now, I didn't want to be a coal miner. I've never stepped foot in a coal mine. So in order to get out of that small minded kind of community and that limited world, I had to start figuring things out. And I started a business when I was 15 detailing cars. So washing the, the coal mining vehicles and the repossessed vehicles at the credit union where my mom worked. And I, instead of blowing that money, I wanted to invest it. And I won a young entrepreneur competition that came with 5,000 bucks. I thought I was rich and I wanted to invest that money. I didn't realize that wasn't that much money. And that led me on a path of learning and navigating the financial world and questioning a lot of what we've been trained and taught, which is setting money aside, hoping for the best in the long run to say there are better paths to wealth. And when I was 22 years old, I went on a two-year, two-month journey every single month, flying around to interview the best financial minds, attend these events that I normally didn't have credentials to get into, and meet with people that had high, high affluence, more wealth individually than my entire community had combined. And that's where it kind of began. Yeah. There's a few things, a few themes that I want to hit on here for everybody who's listening to this. Number one, it doesn't sound like either of you came from money. Is that correct? Certainly not. No, okay. definitely not. Interesting. And both of you have multi-million dollar net worths now. Yep. Indeed. Okay. And I think more importantly, it's just like I, I, I hit, I became a multimillionaire at 26, but I lived like a pauper. I pinched pennies. I saved every dollar. I, if I traveled, I was a miser during it. And I just thought about work and obsessed about it while I was gone to now I'm turning 40 right now. I've been able to really, like, I just got back from a three-day trip with my wife, taking her to one of our favorite comedians and surprising her with Hamilton tickets, staying in some nice hotels and having good meals and not thinking about work for those three days that I was gone, but then coming back and engaged in work that matters and that I enjoy doing things like writing and speaking and teaching and, and, and building incredible relationships rather than doing customer service sales and everything I could do on my own to save every last penny. So it's a different world for me than I started in. So the first thing I want to point out for everybody who's here, regardless of what your financial circumstances were, what you were born into, where they are today, you're looking at one guy, Garrett, and you hear another guy, Nick, both started with really nothing and turned it into something. And both of them had a, a similar, they both did one thing. When they made their money, they put it in their pocket versus putting it in someone else's. Out of curiosity, how many of you who are here, and I won't say names, this is a safe place, how many of you have allowed your lifestyle to rise to a level to meet or exceed your income over time? If me in the questions box. And by the way, I'm going to go ahead and raise my hand because all of you know that I have now done this twice. Uh, Jeff, do you know about Parkinson's Law? Do you know about Parkinson's Law? Work fills to to expand the time you allow it. Same thing with money. Expenses rise to meet or exceed the increase without infrastructure. Ah, interesting. So uh, we're going to walk through the five steps. In fact, which one of you guys wants to walk through the five steps to the five-day weekend? J-Man, go for it. You'll see at the base, there's two things that we're looking at that I feel is sometimes overlooked or not fully addressed in the world of finance. Most of the time in the world of finance, it goes into the second box or the second one above, which is how to make money on your money and how and, to and invest Garrett, your money. Garrett, read them aloud because this is yeah. ultimately going to go up on the podcast later and people yeah. won't have the visual. Yeah, I just want you to guess what I'm talking. No, I'm going to force you to buy the book. No, just kidding. I'll, I'll, I'll name it here. Uh, so keep more money. 
I feel like that is a unique thing that we're talking about in five day weekend is how to keep more of what you make in four main areas. Now, and I'll call them the four eyes to this is kind of US based to keep it four eyes, but it applies anywhere in the world. The first is the IRS. 93% of people tip the government and overpay them. The second I is interest. Four out of five people, if they have more than one loan, overpay on their interest rate because they don't have the right credit score, collateral, cash flow reporting, or connections. And then the third I would be investments. There's plenty of non-performing and hidden fees inside of that that confiscates wealth. And we're talking about substantial wealth. And then the fourth I, the fourth I is insurance, which there's a lot of duplicate coverages, improper structure. So we look to put more money in your pocket, not by coupon clipping or not by reductionist thinking, because no one shrinks their way to wealth. So this is all about efficiency and keeping more of what you make. The second thing is personally and individually looking to make more money. So there's there's three ways to live within your means. The hold, first hold on, Garrett. I want to pause you real quick. So before we do that, because you said the I so fast, first yeah. and foremost is looking at the IRS, how much you're yeah. paying in taxes. The yeah. second is the interest that you're paying on loans. The third was having insurance that overlaps. And what was the fourth one? Your investments, ensuring that they give you the right return? Yep. Uh, where's the non-performing fees, hidden commissions and costs that slyly confiscate hundreds of thousands of dollars? Yeah, see, that's super interesting because when I saw keep more of what you make, I immediately started thinking, how can I spend less at restaurants? How can I cancel subscriptions? Like, how can I scale back the lifestyle? Yeah, and look, there's four types of expenses that are important to understand in keeping more of what you make. The first type of expense is a destructive expense. Destructive expenses we want to eliminate. Borrowing to consume, going on a trip that you can't afford and you put it on a credit card, that's a destructive expense. I think heroin's probably always a destructive expense, so probably eliminate that would be a good thing. But <laughs> we want to get rid of destructive expenses that tend towards debt. But the second type of expense is a lifestyle expense. See, Nick has a lot of lifestyle expenses now, but he only pays for those out of investment returns and all of his active income Absolutely. just builds more investments and builds more cash flow. So it's brilliant. It's it's what he thought of at an early age that totally makes you hate him, but then love him at the same time, right? <laughs> so hold on. That was really that was really important. I want to turn it to the audience. Audience, how many of you are spending your active income, meaning the things you are trading hours for dollars to afford a lifestyle? If so, put me in the chat box versus the alternative where you're using your active income to fund your investments and the re the returns from the investments funds your lifestyle. Then put like the number, put I'm awesome in the chat box. I'm not seeing any awesomes. <laughs> So the lifestyle, the lifestyle expense is fine. You just don't borrow to consume. Those are the things we enjoy in life. The third type of expense that we really address in this book and some of the wealthiest families like the Rockefellers totally understood is a protective expense, building up enough liquidity and safety that you have cash on hand, having the right corporate structures if you own a business, having the right insurances to transfer risk without overpaying on that. And then the fourth type of expense is the game changer, the productive expense. You put a dollar in, more than a dollar comes out. Mentors, books, marketing dollars, processes and systems, investments, productive expenses. That's the name of the game. That's interesting. So that's all around keeping more money, right? Yep. So yep. phase one, if, for, if, if you guys are starting at ground zero, you are working the set. You got the zero day weekend. Step one, keep more of what you make. 
So once we get that down, Garrett, where do we go from there? Then we want to make more money. And this can be done a bit simultaneous. But you mentioned when, when you heard keep more money, you thought budgeting, cutting back, elimination, reductionist thinking, which a lot of financial books talk about. But there's three ways to live within your means. When we hear live within our means, most people hear budgeting. Budgeting sucks. So here's the other two ways. Be more efficient within your means. That's the keep more of what you make in the four eyes. Or expand your means. Expanding your means means serving more people, solving bigger problems, or utilizing scale and leverage to reach more people or more deeply impact the people you reach. Because no financial investment can compete with making more money and keeping more money. You do those two things, then that's what becomes the game changer for investing the money, having your money make money. Cool, cool. So we're, we focus on keeping more of what we make, then we focus on expanding how much comes in. What do we do with that excess amount? Okay, so when you have that excess amount, you want to make sure, and this is something everyone, if you do this right now, will transform your financial life. It's simple, but it's powerful. You set up a separate account. We call it, Nick and I call it a wealth capture account. And it's just a checking, savings, or money market account. And what you want to do is off the top, invest in yourself and pay yourself first. So when you take personal income, you want to take 18% off the top in this other account automatically. That becomes your liquidity and safety. And what we're teaching people to do is deliberately save and then intentionally invest. So deliberately save or automatically save. Most people automatically invest. Nick and I don't believe in automated investing where you turn your mind off and hope that it works out in the long haul. We believe it automatically save, and then when the money's there, allocate the investments appropriately. And where Nick made the big, the biggest difference early on, and he can speak to this if he wants, is distinguishing yep. growth investing versus momentum investing, which is the next slide up on, on when you're making your money make money. Nick, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. So with, uh, with growth investing, um, it obviously... Um, it doesn't take money to make money, but it does take money to actually invest. And um, by investing, we're not we're not talking about um, you know speculating ASAP. So what what we've been saying is build your foundation, solidify your foundation. You know, making sure you're not building your financial empire on quicksand, for example. So we're not solidifying foundations. Then we want to start to incorporate growth investments. And by growth, I'm talking about like you know real estate, for example, over here. Things that have a high probability of generating an income over here. And it's all about um, using your active income to invest to generate more passive income. And as you start to increase your ratios and generate, generate more passive income, then your passive income should then more than cover all your expenses and your liabilities. And we're not suggesting you stop working or, you know, uh, in your vocation or in a job, for example. The idea is build your passive incomes. Uh, on a two-to-one ratio, then to a three-to-one and a four-to-one or a five-to-one passive income ratio. And then at a time you're choosing, you may want to reduce the amount of active hours or you may want to continue working your active hours. But the most important thing is make sure that your passive income now covers all your lifestyle and liabilities because now what you're doing is you're alleviating anxiety and stress, which gives you greater clarity and greater focus to basically focus on the things that really matter in life, which is your health, your family, your time, and just your exuberance and just your invigoration about going out there and living life in your own terms and conditions. Yeah, Nick, let me so let me pause because you can't see this. I'm holding up the the image yeah, sorry. on page 20 where you show. Oh, you can see it. So so absolutely explain explain 
if I don't get the book all messed up. Uh, explain exactly yep. what this looks like, because I I'm putting myself in the listener's shoes, going, all right, I'm just I'm just paycheck to paycheck right now. I hear what you're yeah, saying. Absolutely. Try to cut Definitely. back, save a little bit more. But you start talking about passive income, it doesn't feel tangible to me. Yeah. So let me explain it again. So most individuals now, assuming your expenses are three thousand dollars a month. Okay, so three thousand dollars a month. So your objective is uh, you need to make three thousand dollars just to service and cover all your expenses. So at the start of the month, you start on a zero to one ratio, and your objective is to get to a one to one ratio. So for example, if your expenses are three thousand dollars, you need to come up with three thousand dollars to service your expenses. That's a one to one ratio. Now that's active income, meaning it's one hundred percent reliant on your efforts. It's one hundred percent reliant on you to get out of bed, go to work. Go out there, be physically active to generate that active income to service your debt and your liabilities. So the idea is we want to do this. We want to start to invest because a lot of individuals, they use after-tax dollars and they just basically spend it on things that are just uh, purely for instant gratification. I mean, what Garrett's done or what I've done, you know, we believe we're playing the long game over here, delayed gratification because we're in the trenches, we're working not just one job at a time. I mean. You know, we, we had multiple entrepreneurial things going on at the same time. And, you know, I mean, I was, I was in the trenches doing 50 or 60 or 70 hours because I wanted to build my investment base to generate more passive income. So the idea is, obviously, your active income is at a certain point. As you start to increase your passive income, you can start to reduce your active income over a number of years. Now, we're not saying this is going to happen overnight. It ain't going to happen in 12 months, but the sooner you start, the sooner you take massive action, the sooner you participate in your own financial rescue, you can start to expedite this. And the great thing is you're going to see that incremental improvements, you know, what we call Kaizen over here, which is going to strengthen your resolve, your confidence, your self-esteem, your belief system, and you're going to keep on going. There's going to be challenges along the way. We all know that. I mean, this is not an easy path. You need that fortitude. You need that... um, the resilience, you need that belief system, but you also need individuals around you in your uh, orbit of influence to also keep you accountable to maintaining this um, this roadmap that uh, both Garrett and myself have clearly laid out in the book. Now, and folks, I put this slide up again for you and for people who are listening on the podcast later. It's the, the image of the domino effect, right? You do the right things. You scale back. You keep more of what you make. You start making more money and you channel that surplus into investments. Is it, Are you going to just boom, the passive income shows up right away where you have the hockey stick growth? No, you got to trust the domino effect, which is why we showed this. And what I'm hearing for both you and Nick and Garrett is that stuff didn't show up right away. You had your model, you had your system, you trusted the domino effect. And over time, your passive income raised to a point where your ratios were toward that 10 to 1 ratio. Correct? Indeed. There we go. Okay, cool. So high level, we keep more of what we make. We start to make more money. We then start to fund it in different types of investments. Help me understand a little bit more from a high level, the difference between a growth investment versus a momentum investment. Okay, so growth, for example, we're not talking about... um, you know, mutual funds or any of that type of, um, uh, you know, that traditional. We're, we're a lot more contrarian, contrarian, for example. So for me, uh, I, I was always, um, I, I got started in real estate. Um, I bought my first property as a teenager. 
And then I started investing in more multifamily apartment buildings as opposed to single family apartments, for example, or single family home. Because if you lose your tenant, you've now lost 100% of your rental income. So for me, uh, growth investing has been multifamily apartment buildings, building them up where I can raise the valuations. I can then borrow against them arbitrage-wise. And then I can just keep on scaling up, you know, buying, buying more apartments and more apartments. Because as we know, you know, over 105 million Americans actually rent and the millennial base will continue to rent up until the year 2050. So that demographic is going to continue that trend, that rising trend in relation to individuals that are renting. So for me, uh, it was really just building that growth base, investing there. Momentum-based investments is, for example, cryptocurrencies, for example, or Forex, or basically um, trading options on the financial markets. They're a lot more speculative, more momentum. So what I tell everybody is, Start with your growth investing. Money that you generate, then loop it back into your lifestyle. Or option B is, whatever you generate um, from your growth investments, take 30% from that and then put that into your momentum-type investments. But my point is, whatever you generate in your momentum investments, make sure you loop it back into your growth investments. And then what you're doing is you're generating more passive income, which is going to service your lifestyle. And the really important thing there is, you know, we don't want to speculate because a lot of individuals, they get caught up in speculation. You know, it's the fear of missing out over here. And they go from after-tax dollars straight to speculation. And we're saying that is definitely not the, that is definitely not the route to take. Build your foundations, you know, real estate over here, conservative strategies that are going to give you passive income that have been proven time and time and time again. You can also start to speculate, but only utilizing profits that have been generated from your growth investments. I, I think that one of the distinctions that hit me from the book is that growth investing is the stuff that is less risky, right? Absolutely. It has a proven track record. It's a physical yeah. asset. It's not going to zero. You invest your active income and any of your entrepreneurial out income into the growth investing so that that can throw off enough return income that you could take that surplus from your initial investment to fund the things that are more speculative, like a cryptocurrency or other things that exactly. have extremely high upside. And with growth investing, we're looking at mathematical probability. You know, what's going to give you, what's going to allow you to stack the odds in your favor? Uh, look, the speculative or the momentum, I mean, look, if you land a phenomenal unicorn investment, fantastic. But my point is, uh, very seldom will you always get it right. So my point is there, make sure you have your, you've got your growth investing in place. That's your last line of economic defense. And you and never do anything to dilute that. Yeah, that makes sense. Garrett, from all the people that you know, you've worked with a lot of people when it comes to the financial guidance. What are the limiting beliefs that people tell themselves that stops them from beginning to play this game? Uh, I don't have enough time. Uh, I don't have enough knowledge. Um, it's too confusing. I'll just make more money and get around to this later. Um, I'm just going to put my money in a mutual fund and 30 years from today, it's going to be okay. Um, I'm just going to grind out doing things I hate doing in the name of a better future, like hard work with bad philosophy equals bankruptcy. And that's where people got to get it crystal clear. And money's not optional if you're going to live in society. Now, if you're going to have a loincloth and a bow and arrow and live in the mountains, you're totally cool. No big deal. Don't need to read the book. But if you use money as a tool of exchange, not understanding it is a problematic life. 
That was the the <laughs> guy's trip you sent me the email on, right? For for next month, the, the loincloth and bow and arrow thing in Utah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For people who are on here live, I'm actually really curious. Like we've walked you through much of the model, this idea of keeping more, make more, invest it in something that's safe with a predictable return. Use that cash flow to invest in the speculative stuff that'll give you the high return. What are your limiting beliefs around this? Put that in the question box because I would love to serve those up to Garrett and Nick. And let's have a real conversation around this. Yeah, and there's some things that tilt the odds in your favor here. I mean, first off, if you go, I just don't have any extra money, we begin with being efficient and finding money for you. Right. Second, we go, here's how you make more money. Because of the skills, resources, knowledge, and ability you have, whether you're working in a job and we show you how to be more entrepreneurial and make more income, like, look, I'll begin with my own organization. I acquired a firm in 2014 that was laden with big salaries and everyone was on salary. And I said, look, if you guys want to remain on salary, you see what you get. If you want to change your salary, but get a percentage of upside when you contribute to the bottom line. And I could tell you that every single person in our firm made more money last year than they'd ever made before. And some of them made so much. I was going, man, that's a damn good strategy. You know, like they're making so much more money in there because we have to think like either entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs is you go start something. Entrepreneur is you don't like to start it. You like to improve it and you like to work within an organization, but you get compensated with upside. Most people, Jeff, they don't want to have all the downside risk of being an entrepreneur, but they want all the upside potential. And when we share the right conversations and thinking processes, they make more money. Then here's the news. When it comes to investing, people go, oh, it's overwhelming and it's confusing. The good news is 85% of what you think you need to know about doesn't apply to you. You never need to worry about it. See, the, one of the biggest myths out there, and if we were to teach one thing to be on the One Thing podcast is focus, don't diversify. See, most people are taught diversification out of ignorance. I don't know what's going to work. I'll just spread it amongst a bunch of things, and it actually creates some risk for you because you don't understand the outcome the value creation chain, the what makes it work or not work. And Andrew Carnegie said, invest all your eggs in one basket and watch it like a hawk. So what if you were to focus instead of diversify? Now you just have to figure out your investor DNA. What do you have superior knowledge in, you're driven to learn more about, that you pay attention to and you focus there? Build your cash flow from that first and then expand into the other things that are the momentum investments and the seductive, sexy things like crypto or whatever it might be. And you're just, you're going to have so much more success and stability. So where do we go from here, guys? All right. So keep more, make more, grow your investments. And then really it's a mindset of continually investing in yourself. So there's three types of capital. I think a lot of people want more financial capital, but we have to realize financial capital is a byproduct of two other precious forms of capital. The first one being mental capital. It's your knowledge, ideas, wisdom, tools, strategies, insights. And sometimes people say it's not what you know, it's who you know. But let's face it. If you don't know anything, you'll get a hangout. Nobody's yeah. inviting you over, right? So what we know is critical. When we multiply that by the relationships we have, by, we t by taking our mental capital and bringing it to people, networks, organizations, clients, mentees, mentors, friends, family, there's a bridge between that called business. And that bridge just needs to have access of serving others, solving those problems and delivering that value and dollars follow value. So the best way to exponentially grow your wealth 
is find that one thing in your mental capital that makes the biggest impact and find the biggest influencers or magnifying glasses or people that exponentially get your message out there. And there's money to be made. And we're in the, mo the most magnificent time. We got cyber gypsy Nick Halleck here living who knows where. He's in North Korea, he's in silos, he's in volcanoes, but he can still do business because of a telephone. And I mean, how cool is that, that we have 12-year-olds and eight-year-olds that are multimillionaires because of the advent of the internet? So mm -hmm. I feel like even though it's a more crowded marketplace, there's never been an easier time to reach people in some ways and harder time for them to hear your message. But it's a time where people are even more loyal if they find people of true value. So don't seek to be a man of wealth. Seek to, seek to be a man of value. I believe that was Einstein that said that. So I don't want anyone retweeting or saying that that was my quote. But the bottom line is that's what we're talking about here. And if you have a money problem, it's never a money problem. It's a mental capital problem or relationship capital problem. So you're only one idea or one relationship away from the next level of prosperity. And I'm using the word one with extra emphasis here for you today, Jeff, man, just to keep it in the theme. Thank you. Folks, what ahas are you having? I'd be very curious to, to share with some of those. Jenny just said, oh my gosh, I love that. What ahas are you having? And at this point, with all the things that you've been considered, what's the one thing that's stopping you? Share that with us so that I can serve that up to Garrett and Nick. And let's have a conversation around that. Nick, is there anything you'd like to add to that? I will say right now, it's like, I mean, every, everything, that I've, everything that I've done in my life, it's been a, a specific moment because it's all about experiential living. And I find a lot of individuals, they, they get caught up in life, you know? They die at 21 years of age and they get buried at 75 because they've just lost a desire, lost the will, and it's like being, their, their passion has been somewhat extinguished over here. But um, by subscribing to a, um, a methodology, and this is something that's been, you know, uh, both Garrett and myself have sort of discovered this by default. I mean, we never really had mentors. We never really had anybody to, um, you know, hold our hand for the whole process. And personally, look, you know, in my quest, to get where I am right now, I have literally lost millions of dollars just making some crazy ass mistakes, you know, trusting the wrong individuals or the wrong type of investment strategies that were, um, you know. But ultimately, uh, I, I had to get in the trenches. I had to lose. I had to have some emotional and monetary skin in the game in order for me to come up with these uh, formative lessons. And now I can go there and amplify my economic signal and provide a step-by-step -step approach coupled with what Garrett's, I mean, Garrett's foundation, I mean, Garrett's foundation. And there's a lot of similarities in our stories and the foundational knowledge and the strategies that are, um, that are basically um, uh, with the odds are stacked in your favor. Uh, and it also just comes down to financial logic and financial sense. And these are the type of strategies that, um, you know, parents should be teaching their young teenagers before they embark in the outside world. Mm -hmm. I'm putting myself in the shoes. Let's say I'm a person. I've got less than $5,000 to invest. What would you do with it? By the way, um, Quinn put a, a note in here that I think is great. He says he uses specifically designed uh, insurance policies as his own bank and, and uh, has guarantees and charges himself interest if he uses it. And he uses it to increase his assets and cash flow, making his dollars work multiple ways. We call that the Rockefeller formula. And Quinn, I think you'll love what we talk about in the book because it's one of the easiest ways to store your money. And then you get tax advantages, liability uh, protection, bankruptcy protection, a multitude of benefits. But 
when the right opportunities come our way, because everyone's in store for at least 20 amazing investment opportunities in their life. The problem is most people are illiquid for 19 of them. And so if you build this storage facility in Tank that you know that doesn't have to participate in the downside of the stock market, is available within 48 to 72 hours, yet it has those tax advantages and isn't locked up like a retirement plan, I like that as an early step. And we talk about that in the book because that's part of the automated infrastructure that you can immediately capture that wealth and then utilize it when the appropriate times come. And Ted Turner made most of his money, by the way, sitting in cash and then pouncing when the opportunities were right. Not always investing early, often and always, like most financial books talk about. Darrell, what would you suggest if somebody has $5,000 or less to start their I started their that process I'm talking to you about with $100 a month. So you could put a lump sum in. and But more than anything, if people are saying, where do I invest? It's a clear answer. Your financial knowledge your investor IQ, and in some type of system or mentorship, because you've got to become a better investor. And $5,000 will go a lot further in your head than any type of account. Some people will erroneously go buy Bitcoin with it or erroneously go to a tax lien before they understand those things. You've got to have the knowledge base first. And if you like my first $5,000 investment while I was in college, is I actually paid for an economic and financial system that cost $3,000 for the training and $2,000 for the software. I still use it to this day, 20 years later. That was better than me going, oh, I'm going to take that 5000 bucks and I'm going to go buy a stock that I think is going to pay off. And sometimes we put the cart before the horse that way, thinking the product is the answer, but the process, the knowledge, and the right investment aligned with our investor DNA, what makes sense for us, I think makes more sense. Yeah, seek the counsel of um, you know, economic mentorship, individuals that basically have the lifestyle that you desire. And um, you know, whether it's just like asking them really valid questions or even working for them complimentary for free the next one or two years of your life, going out there, learning from their mistakes. And if you don't have the finances to work on your dreams, work on somebody else's dreams and learn from their lessons. Simple as that. Yeah, I love that. I love that. What, what do you do? Evan asked a great question that I know is a repeating theme for people. Um, they start going down the journey. They mentally commit to making the change themselves. And then they realize they're married and they have a spouse that is not on board. How do you get a spouse on board with this type of a model of keeping more of what you make? Let's go do additional things to make more money. Then let's invest that and let that generate investments and keep the lifestyle down until it can be justified to raise it. All right, I've got a great answer for this, okay? Because I'm married and we're going on our 16th year. She was so tired of hearing about terms like velocity of money and uh, this that I, I think she was almost not willing to go down the aisle at first. And we had very different habits initially. My habit was when we first got married, I, I believed in the Ebenezer Scrooge method of money management, of just saving every penny. I read The Millionaire Next Door and I thought, hey, we're just never going to spend money and we can be broke millionaires one day. And uh, she thought maybe buying a little bit and having fun would be nice. So we were on very different kind of paths. And what we did to come together is I looked at my business and in my business, I have weekly meetings with important people, but I didn't ever have a weekly meeting with my wife. So what we did is we sat down every week and we had, you know, now we even have someone watching the kids if need be, no interruptions or phone calls. I treat it like the most important meeting of the week. And we have an agenda. And that agenda says, what's our vision for our family? What are the things that we want to accomplish financially? 
What are the things that we can reward ourselves with? And here's one of the things that really worked for us is for 3% of all income, we put in an account called the Living Wealthy account. And that Living Wealthy account has guilt-free spending. So if we want to get lay down seats to fly to Europe, if we want to buy uh, nicer clothes, if we want to take a, a nice little trip or get a nice hotel, we spend that money. And we did this along the way so that we didn't feel like we were on a financial diet all the time, which just sounds like death, right? D-I-E-T. Die is the first three letters of that. Like where she's going, oh, awesome. I married the miser of misers and I guess we'll just never get to enjoy the money. So that gave us a little bit of freedom that every time we saved 15% into our wealth capture account, another 3% went into our living wealthy account with guilt-free spending. And then we weekly would measure our progress. Hey, are we living within our means? What can we do to expand our means? When we hit any of these major milestones, what can we do to reward ourselves so we're not waiting for 10 years or 12 years down the road? So she saw light at the end of the tunnel, felt rewards along the way, and it took a while of having weekly conversations. But after a few months, we got on the same page. We worked on this together. I started giving her money into her accounts where she could spend it however she wanted when it showed up and didn't need to get my permission. So she felt a little bit of freedom. Everybody has their own money personality. Some people are savers, so they have the first dollar they ever earned. Others are spenders. They can't have money in the account for longer than a day, as my dad said, burning a hole in their pocket. Some people are masters. They just want to continue to grow and reinvest. Other people are givers, where they just give everything away. And most people don't marry the same financial personality as them. So what we do, and this was the big thing for my wife, as I said, babe, if we can create economic independence where we have enough recurring revenue, from our entrepreneurial pursuits and investments to cover our basic expenses, we can live like no one else can live. We just have to be strategic and intentional. We don't have to give up everything along the way because of that living wealthy account. But once we get there, let's do this and this and this, and we can have this. And like we just bought into a vision and a dream together where like we're inspired by that. Didn't happen overnight, weekly meetings, and a little bit of like, it's not even compromise. It's just what do you need? What do I need? How can we get there together? And, I, and she wanted more than anything, financial stability and security. And I'm an entrepreneur. So I'm reinvesting so fast. I was like, what kind of what kind of financial security and stability do we have at economic independence? She goes, amazing. I'm like, right. So can we get on board to getting there as quickly as possible? And once we're there, I can actually have more permission for my moment, momentum investments, buying a new company or launching a book you know, for the first time or whatever that might be that you don't know exactly how it's going to pay off or when it's going to pay off, but it's compelling and it's calling us. So I, I, her and I have a pretty amazing relationship at this point where money's never really an issue for us, but she has a lot of friends where money's a big issue for them because they're not on the same page as their spouse. Let me ask you this. How many people who are listening to this are realizing that you have an opportunity to have a meeting every week with your spouse around money? If so, put yes in the questions box. Uh, I will share that this has been a journey I've been going down, Garrett and Nick, for at least six months now. And I started implementing Sunday meetings with my wife. And in fact, every Monday when I sit down with my partner, Jay, and I hand him my 411, first question he asks every week is, how was your Sunday meeting with Amy? The challenge that I brought to the table is I brought accountability coach to the table where I'm the guy that wants to save everything and she wants to live for the now. And it created tremendous distance yeah, when I'm accountability, it's a problem for us. So I'm yeah. no longer accountability coach. So I'm with you on that. Well, what I love that you said is the same advice Jay gave to me is move from being entrepreneurial to being purposeful. Establish a system. When there is surplus money, how much of it, what percent will go into, we call it the fun fund. I love it. Your wealthy fund. 
My question for you is what were the points of your agenda? Because right now we've I've always just sat down and looked at budget, which is not exactly motivating for her. Cool. This look, I, I'll give my agenda to everyone and there's no opt-in. It just happens to be sitting on a website if you want me to give that out. Go. Freedomfasttrack.com forward slash marriage. Two interviews on that where people interview my wife and I. One guy was the original guy we hired to run the meeting because we were too much of a train wreck at first to figure it out together. And the second one was the person that inspired us to have an even better relationship. But we have our whole agenda, our, our agenda that's the weekly one, our quarterly, and our annual agenda. You can borrow, steal, adapt, or whatever from that that you want. There's no opt-in. It just I gave a speech at Genius Network once and I was like, hey, here's some resources for you. And it's always been up there. Freedomfasttrack.com. That's two Ts.com forward slash marriage. Awesome. I love it. What's a question I haven't asked you yet that I absolutely should ask you? Yeah. I think a lot of times, like you hear a lot of entrepreneurial stories, you know, you don't hear about the challenges. How many times you've ended up in a cul-de-sac? You know, you're you're at one particular point, you're on this wealth superhighway, then bang, you're being smashed into a cul-de-sac, and then you're gonna change your thinking. You're going to change your strategy, and you know it. Also, it's it's all about how you can exhibit behavioral flexibility to change your strat, your tactic, or your strategy to get back onto that wealth super highway. Because as we know, so many things happen in life. There are so many challenges, and you know it's got to the point now where I love hurdles, I love obstacles because I've been challenged. I get, I I am being continually challenged every day, and I love that. And my point and my question to anybody listening right now is. How often do you get challenged? When I hire individuals and when I see contractors, I don't I don't want to see their um, you know these these resumes or how many you know or you know how many certificates or whether they've got a PhD. I want to I ask them, look, show them, tell me your biggest mistakes, tell me your biggest hurdles, and how have you overcome them? And I think for an entrepreneur that has more weighting in gold than basically an individual just talking about how they've actually made the money. I'm more interested in the challenges on the way because we can all resonate with that. Well, let me ask you about a challenge that I know resonates. There were several people that their question was around, I want to invest in real estate. I don't have the knowledge yet, and I don't know what the right investment is. Nick, have you always hit home runs when you invested in real estate? Yeah, I've got some crazy stories of real estate. On <laughs> I mean, Tell about you know, your underwater I, property, bro. Tell about your underwater yeah. land. <laughs> I, I bought a, um, I bought some acreage of land unsighted, and it was in a hundred-year flood zone where eight months of the year it, it's always underwater. And you know, here's a, here's a crazy thing: some people would have sold that piece of land uh, in disgust and just taken a loss. I still own it on purpose, so it's a continual thorn in my sight to remind me not to be an idiot, but to do my due diligence. So I still keep it. It's still part of my portfolio, even though it's underwater. (laughs) But not all real estate mistakes are bad ones. Uh, Tell them about your uh, unintentional brothel. Huh, Nick? Tell them about that. (laughs) Okay. So I was off to the supermarket one morning. I was going to buy some um, some almond milk. And um, there was an auction along the way. So I just happened to walk into the auction and there was about five people that were sort of supposedly bidding with an auctioneer. And then the auctioneer was starting to process. I mean, I, I didn't actually walk inside the house or not. But anyway, um, I turned out acquiring the property because I sort of figured, well, you know, keep the auctioneer, give him a bit of an incentive every year to, to encourage all the other people that are bidding to start bidding for the property. And it turned out that I was the, I was the only bidder. And by default, 
I'm the guy who actually acquired the property. So I purchased it for $218,000. Anyway, so along the way, this property about, you know, year five, year six, I've renovated it, a massive um, piece of property. The police came to my house to arrest me for supposedly operating a brothel. Now, little did I know, my tenants, who my managing agent said were, were, were the most amazing tenants, always paying on time, were actually operating an illegal brothel. Now I've got the police about to handcuff me, thinking that I was running the brothel. And the funny thing was, this house was a two-bedroom house. By the time I got it back, it was a four-bedroom house. Business was that good. <laughs> So now you can rent out four rooms to a, a, a more appropriate uh, renter after that, you know? Uh, like so let me tell you. Creating and an appreciated asset. Yeah, I mean, and that, and that property, I just recently sold in December of last year. I sold it for $1.9 million. Bought it for two hundred eighteen. sold it for $1.9 million. So Nick, what's, think of all your experience in real estate. And I heard you say two words, due diligence. Yeah. What does that look like for somebody who doesn't have a background in real estate? They want to start investing in real estate and their their zeal, their enthusiasm, their drive is going to make them just want to make a deal. Definitely. And one number one rule is the profits and the purchase. Never buy real estate with the hope it'll appreciate over time. I want to buy it at least 10 or 15% below market value. For me, you know, I, I don't want to overpay. So the human emotion is I, I always want to underpay. So if I, look, for example, if I'm going to have a 20 or 30% deposit, I want to buy for at least 15% below market value. That means if I've got a 20% deposit, now I've got 35% skin in the game. So it's greater, there's greater equity over here. I'm not going to incur mortgage insurance. And my rule is this. If there's a liability, I always pay cash. My principal residence of liability is always paid with cash. But when it's an asset, 20 or 30% down, depending on the style of property, and then I borrow the rest, interest only. So and, and my, my goal there is to just simply uh, increase the capital growth value. Then I'm able to borrow against the property and then seek leverage elsewhere where I can generate 20 or 30% returns compared to a line of credit of 4%, for example. So the profit has to be in the purchase, you know. I'm not looking at just investing in land. It's got to be income producing. I don't buy single family. I'm looking at, you know, at least start with a duplex or a fourplex over here and then start to build it up to like eight apartments or, or a building of 15 apartments or 20 apartments. Now I'm looking at multifamily apartment buildings of anywhere between 40 to 80 apartments. So you start to scale up here because I understand the game. I understand the needs. And all I'm doing is this. I value factor. I add value to whatever I do and I provide a service for it. And for that, I get compensated. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Well, from a high level, I want to recap one more time and I'll, and I'll show the screen for everybody. The steps, the five steps to generating the five-day weekend starts by simply keeping more of what you make. Then you focus on boosting your income. And if that requires a side hustle, so be it. That extra cash funds your growth investing. Things and in, th assets like real estate that have a predictable track record of producing returns. And those returns fund your momentum investing, the things that are more speculative, more explosive. You go on your journey to the point where you ultimately can live your purpose. Gentlemen, where can people learn more about your brand new, awesome book, Five Day Weekend? 
Definitely. They can do two things. They can also visit the website, which is 5dayaweekend.com. That's 5numerical5dayaweekend.com. You can go to wealthfactory.com forward slash podcast and get some pretty cool resources that I put together on improving cash flow and things that, that are perfect complements to the book that I did just for this and just for the, in you know, how do you do everything with a five-day weekend? So Awesome. Awesome. Well, folks, thank you so much for those of you who are here live. Every month we do a webinar just like this with best-selling authors. Go to the onething.com with the number one slash webinar to learn more about next month's. And uh, if you're not yet subscribed to the podcast, please go ahead and do so. This will be released there. Garrett, Nick, I really appreciate both of your time. Thank you so much. And uh, Garrett, let me know when that bow hunting trip is. All right, man. We'll, we'll go uh, get some uh, fresh meat and uh, you know run around without having to use money. <laughs> awesome. Well, there you have it. My conversation with Nick Halick and Garrett Gunderson. Folks, the things that stand out to me is uh, number one, get started. Whatever excuse you are making to justify you not taking action, their first step is keep more of what you make. Look at where your money is going and see where you can cut those expenses, whether it be in your insurance, whether it be in the interest that you're paying, if you have non-performing assets, if you're paying too much to the IRS, the four I's, that's even before you look at cutting lifestyle. Then you look at how you can actually make more money, whether that be building a side hustle or figuring out how you can bring more value to the existing clients that you already have and keeping your lifestyle stagnant while you use that excess cash flow to fund investments, ones that have a predictable track record like real estate, for example. And then the income that comes from that, you can use for more speculative things that have really high upside, but that also carry some risk. And over time, when you trust the domino effect, when you keep your lifestyle where it is and you follow this model, over time, passive income rises to the point where you get to wake up and choose what you want to do every single day. And at that point, you earn the right to say that you're living a five-day weekend. If you'd like to get a copy of the book, go to 5dayweekend.com. That's with the number five in the URL, 5dayweekend.com. Please support these guys. It would mean the world to us. And in the next episode, you'll get to hear a keynote that Jay Papazan and I gave on how billionaires set goals. If you want to make sure that you do not miss that episode, go ahead and click that subscribe button so that episode will automatically be downloaded to your device. Thanks so much. And we look forward to being with you in the next episode.